Good afternoon to all of you. Good to see all of you here. We have a number of people out for various reasons, and uh, hope that we'll remember all those in our prayers who are uh, going through various trials at this time. Seems like trials are associated with this time of year uh, for whatever reason. I was hearing a program one time on radio, and they were talking about mental illness and a lady called in, I have no idea what her source was, but she just made this statement as though it was a matter of fact. Uh, she had a relative who had mental illness, and she said, as everyone knows, mental illness kind of peaks around April and September. And I thought that, that was rather interesting, uh, that this is the time of the holy days, and uh, sometimes those things happen, and I've personally seen some association with that over the years, some very direct association with one or two individuals. So uh, do pray for one another at this time. It seems like we have one, one problem after another. We're all familiar with the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, and they were given a beautiful environment, an ideal environment. I always think they had perfect weather. I don't know exactly what God gave to them there. Uh, some people complain when the weather is too perfect. I remember in California, those who came from the Midwest or the North would complain that there were no seasons. And so it seems like no matter how perfect the weather is, uh, it's not going to be perfect for everybody. But we always assume that everything was just idealistic uh, or ide- ideal in the garden. Uh, they certainly had the best food that could possibly be given to a human being. And they had the unique privilege to know their creator. And it seems as though they saw uh, the one who became Jesus Christ walking in the garden, not in his glorified state, of course, but uh, they certainly heard his voice. They talked with him from time to time. But they coveted something that was not theirs. They saw this one tree that they were forbidden from eating, And they sinned by stealing the fruit of it. And they dishonored their father by doing so. And by extension, I suppose we could say they broke all of the commandments one way or another. The result was that they were booted out of the garden. They were separated from God and from the beautiful garden that God had given them, that wonderful gift. Today we're going to look at how sin separates us from our Creator and also from one another. And we'll also look at the wonderful subject of reconciliation. So if you need a title to today's sermon, it is simply Separation and Reconciliation. Let's go back to the garden for a few minutes. We'll just take a a quick look at it and not spend a lot of time here. We know the story as it, it came out. And It's interesting, when I think of stories and the prayer that we had at the beginning of the service and our young people, I remember hearing how a parent uh, described to us their daughter who had gone off to Ambassador College was talking to their younger daughter who was at home on the telephone, and she was the, the girl from college was saying, did you know that the Bible has stories? Now, I don't know how you could grow up in the church as these girls did and not know that the Bible has stories, but it's amazing sometimes what is overlooked. We have 
the story of Adam and Eve. We have David and Goliath. We have all these stories, the story of Esther, as we heard about a week or two ago. And uh, we have the story of Ruth and just, you know, uh, Samson and Delilah. We have all these stories there, but sometimes young people can sit there and miss the most obvious uh, thing about the Bible. I thought that was a rather amazing observation when she got to college, that there are actually stories in the Bible. Well, we have this one in Genesis, and if you haven't read it, I would encourage you to do so. Just start with Genesis 1 and start reading, and you come to uh, chapter uh, 3, and you read there in verse 17, after they had taken of the forbidden fruit, I'm not going to go through that part, I'll leave that for you to, to read, and most of you are very familiar with it. But then verse 17, it says, Then to Adam he said, Then to Adam God said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will or shall return. So we see that the ease with which they could procure food in the garden was taken away. They were cast out of the garden, and at that time they would have to work a lot harder. The ground would not produce as well. And eventually they would return to dust. They would die. They were made from dust and would go back to dust. And verse 20 says, And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the eternal God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the eternal God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil, to determine for himself what is good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, Therefore, the eternal God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So they were cut off from the tree of life, and they were cut off from God. Now, we will see that there was some... uh, communication between God and man from time to time. But we find here that there was a penalty for their sin. There was pain, there was suffering, and eventually there was death. But also as part of this penalty was separation from God. That relationship was lost, the close relationship that they must have had at that time when God first created them and began to instruct them. He had to give them understanding and knowledge of what was right and what was wrong. And who knows what else he must have explained to them at that time. But they learned about God directly. They didn't have the Bible to read, so they had to learn from God. But we'd like, you know, we see that they were cut off from that close relationship. And that relationship must have been extremely precious. They only understood it when they lost it. Wouldn't we like to see God and Christ face to face? I think all of us would. And I think we, I know that we will, one way or the other, we will see them. 
But we would love to have that relationship where when difficult times come, we can go to our Father as we go to our human Father or to Jesus Christ in the same way and be able to see them face to face and speak mouth to mouth. But we don't have that opportunity in the same way. Yes, we do have the opportunity to communicate with God through prayer. We read what he has to say through the Bible, and so he communicates to us that way. But there is a difference, isn't there, when we can't truly see God in the sense that Adam and Eve could and that others have. David says that he was waiting for the day, the resurrection, when he would see God face to face. But also we find that David felt this separation from time to time. We know that David was a man of faith, but in Psalm 13 and verse 1, we read what is typical throughout the Psalms of David crying out to God, really wanting God to intervene in a special way at that time. Notice Psalm 13, verse 1, How long, O Eternal, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Now, we know that the Psalms often began this way, but before they were over, we know that David recognized that God was with him. And God rescued him on many occasions. And he prayed and he cried out to God very zealously and and from the heart. But so many times, how long before you intervene? How long before I see your face? Don't turn your back on me. We read those things in various words throughout the Psalms. Verse 2, he says, How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O eternal my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death lest I die, lest my enemies say I have prevailed against him, lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. But I have trusted in your mercy. So we do see the faith of David, even though he asked these questions. He says, I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. He knew that God would eventually enter, uh, enter into his life, or not enter his life, but he would eventually intervene in his life, but he wondered how long. I trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will rejoice when you do intervene. I will sing to the eternal because he has dealt bountifully with me. And so we see that there is this relationship that we can have with God, and yet we want that closer relationship. We want to know that God will not turn his face away from us. We want to know that he is there, that he will hear in this particular crisis that we're in, whatever it might be. And we would love to have that relationship that Adam and Eve had with God in the garden. If for no other reason to explain, what is it that I need to learn? What is the problem? Why haven't you intervened for me? When we talk to our own parents, our father or mother, and we ask for a bicycle or we ask for something if we're a little kid, and they tell us no, we want to know why. And oftentimes they explain to us that we have to work for it or that we were not very good uh, the last month and maybe we'll have to wait a little bit longer. There may be an explanation, but we can get that explanation. 
Yet in this life, oftentimes we have to learn in a more indirect manner what the lesson is for us. We can know that is, this is uh, often used when it says, hide not your face from me in a figurative sense, and that we can have that close relationship with God in this life, as David certainly did. And every year at the Passover, we read from the book of John, the 13th through the 17th chapters, and we see certain statements that indicate to us that we can have that very close relationship with God. Even though we can't see Him, we can have a close relationship. In John 14, as an example, we'll start there. John 14, verse 12. And again, we read excerpts from this section of Scripture and oftentimes read these very words as we go through it. In verse 12, it says, Most assuredly I say to you, He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And so Jesus was explaining that because he went to his Father, because he would give us the Holy Spirit, he would create within us a trust and a confidence to know that God is always there that we don't have to be separate from God in that sense. Notice over in the uh, 14th chapter, verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Do you understand that? Do you feel that? Do you comprehend that God the Father and Jesus Christ are making their home with you? That's a very difficult thing, isn't it? And I think that we have faith, but sometimes our faith is tried, isn't it? Sometimes we wonder, are my prayers going further than the corner of the ceiling that we're looking up at, perhaps, or the floor that we're bowing down and looking down, or the darkness as we shut our eyes? Do we know that God is always there, that Jesus Christ will never leave us nor forsake us? You know, it's a hard thing. It's a hard thing, isn't it, to talk to God and to concentrate when you can't see Him. I don't know about you, but I find when I get down and pray, I I start praying about something, and I may say something in prayer, and that reminds me of something else, and that reminds me of something else, and all of a sudden I'm saying, you know, God help me to focus, keep my mind focused, because you lose that focus when you can't see that other person face to face. And I don't know about your mind, but mine is just, it just goes all over the place. It's easily distracted. Some people are so focused that they they can just concentrate. And other times I have to kind of go back and I think, well, how did I get here? Oh, okay, that's how I got here. That thought brought another thought to mind, and pretty soon you're out in left field someplace. But when you're talking with someone, usually you don't lose that focus as much because there is feedback. You are... Uh, talking to that individual. You don't find yourself dozing off nearly as much. Now, I sometimes doze off when I'm talking to people. I, I think Mr. Smith was in my office the other day, and he probably noticed I was a little bit sleepy uh, in the afternoon, but I'm sorry about that. But I was listening most of the time. Uh, sometimes the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, isn't it? 
In John, the 15th chapter, and verse 7, he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. So if God abides in us, if you abide in him and he abides in you, his words, the the scriptures, if they abide in us, he says, uh, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. But as we see in the Psalms, it may not be done for us immediately. Sometimes we have to wait. Sometimes there's a lesson. And sometimes it's instantaneous and how... How wonderful that is to pray and have an instant answer and you know that God is there. I find that a lot of the answers that come instantaneously are, are not uh, God heal me or take this pain away, but what do I speak on this week? What, what's, what subject should I talk to your people about? And as I'm praying about it, something will come to mind. Or you're looking for your keys or your glasses or whatever it is and you can't find them. Maybe it's a piece of paper, a very valuable piece of paper that you need and, and you can't find it and you pray about it and boom, you know, there it is. You think of something you hadn't thought of before, a location. I remember Mr. Ames' sermon about the, was it ring? I think it was, a diamond ring or something that took a year but uh, eventually uh, showed up. Uh, sometimes the answer is immediate. Sometimes it takes a little bit longer. But nevertheless, God does answer a lot of our prayers, even little tiny prayers that we, we, we pray about. And sometimes he has a sense of humor about things. Sometimes he uh, is very serious with us and allows some trial to go on so that we can learn. And we learn to rejoice even in our trials. In verse 7, though, he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. Then down in verse 16, it says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. Now, do we understand, John 6, 44, that God the Father has called us? Wow. That is, that is an amazing truth. Sadly, I think that sometimes we think God called me because I'm, I don't think this, handsome, <laughs> good-looking, smart, more righteous. Uh, is that why God called us? Well, he tells us in 1 Corinthians, the uh, first chapter there, beginning about verse 26, that he's called us for a very different reason. Not because we're great. And just as with Israel, he said, I didn't call you because you were more numerous than other nations or more righteous. But God calls us for his reasons. But if you understand these things and God has called you, then he has called you. Out of all the billions on the face of the earth, he chose you. Now he chose the fellow next to you as well and others in other parts of the world and Various individuals he's called, but he's called each of us individually. Sometimes he uses another person to call us. I've, I've been amazed how very often, uh, I, I, I could take a show of hands, I suppose, but I won't. But I, I know with me, God called me through somebody else, but that other individual didn't stay with it. And I've seen that happen so many times that somebody is preaching, they're trying to convert the world, And you were the one that 
God opened the mind of, but the very person that was you know, introducing you to the truth really wasn't being called or that individual didn't stay with the calling. It happens quite often. It certainly did with me. But here he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, and you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whoever, whatsoever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. Now that's perhaps another theme that runs through this passage of Scripture is love. But I think that we need to understand that that is a theme of this time of year, of love and forgiveness. And I won't get into that too much here today, but nevertheless, I, I want to make sure that we don't forget that. Because too often, even in the church of God, there is a lack of love, a lack of trust. We hear something happening over here, over there, and we just assume every rumor is true or every accusation is true. We just don't know a lot of times, and we... We jump to conclusions, and that is not love. That is not trusting God that he knows what he's doing with his children. In the 17th chapter, we read something that should be very encouraging to us. Uh, Verse 20, he says, I do not pray for these alone. So Jesus is praying here, as we read there in verse 1, he went to his father and, and he prayed to him at that time. And he said, I'm not praying for these disciples of mine right here only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. And that comes right down to today, that when Jesus was praying to his Father at that time, he was also praying for you and for me. He didn't obviously know exactly, I say, maybe God the Father. Well, you get into a very detailed question here of how much does God know in advance? Did he know that you would be here by this name and, and you would look exactly as you do? Uh, I guess he would have had to arrange for adultery and fornication and all kinds of things down through history because most of us are, uh, you know, the products of who knows what if we go back far enough in our history. But God knew, Jesus knew that there would be people called at the end of the age And so he prayed for those who would be called at this time, recognizing the general direction of the world and how difficult it would be. For us, our difficulty isn't persecution for the most part right now. Our difficulty is prosperity and ease and all the other things that come with it. He said that all may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. So we are to be one, one with God the Father, one with Jesus Christ, and one with one another. And the glory which you gave me, verse 22, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. So God wants us to be one. He wants us to be in harmony with one another, be looking in the same direction, encouraging one another, recognizing that we all have our own weaknesses. What is difficult for us as humans is that the areas that we are strong in, we judge others as being weak. If a woman is a good housekeeper, 
She may look at women who are not good housekeepers as being flawed in some way. And the woman who may not be the greatest housekeeper really spends time with her children, and she looks at the woman who is a great housekeeper and says, well, I may not have the cleanest house, but at least I give my children time. That's just an example of the things that we sometimes do. I remember at Ambassador College, we had those that got excellent grades, and they could feel superior because they had excellent grades. And then those who didn't have such good grades, they might look about and say, well, I may not have the best grades, but at least I'm enjoying life. And those in the middle, they had their own set of vanity, that they were the balanced ones. It's so easy, isn't it, to judge others. Wherever we are strong, we expect everybody else to be strong. And although we know that the other person is not perfect, we are shocked at how imperfect that person may be or in what way that other person may be. We don't have the problem, so we expect that that person shouldn't have the problem. But we're all flawed. And we might as well get used to that fact. There's not a perfect person in this room. Nor is there, in all of the church of God, there's no perfect person. Are we able to overlook the imperfection? Are we able to understand that God is working with each and every one of us and that we have our own trials to overcome, our own weaknesses to overcome? He wants us to be at one with one another. Verse 23, I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So God loves us as God the Father loved Jesus. Father, verse 24, I desire that you also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. And he finishes off the prayer in verse 25 and verse 26. In the 20th chapter of John, we see part of our problem, John 20, and we'll pick it up in verse 24. This is after the resurrection, and it says that Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. We, we give doubting Thomas a rough time, don't we? But how many of us would have been the same? You see, the others believed because they saw him. And even there we see that it was a, a reluctant coming along. They, they doubted at first, but here they, they believed and they tell Thomas, and Thomas says, well, I, I have to see the evidence before I'm going to believe. Verse 26, and after eight days the disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them, and Jesus came uh, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. So he just appeared. The doors were shut, they were locked, and all of a sudden, here he is. He appeared to them, and he said, Peace to you. 
I, I would think about that time, there were probably a little bit of uh, uh, shaking or, you know, shock. And he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Stop your unbelief and believe. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Well, that's where we are. We haven't seen. We haven't seen the resurrected Christ in person. Thomas didn't have to put his hands in Jesus' side. He didn't have to put his hands in the, the prints of the nails. When he saw somebody appear in the room and he recognized who that form was, he just said, my God, my Lord and my God, my Master and my God. He recognized who he was. Wouldn't it be wonderful if each of us had that experience? But let me qualify that by saying, I hope that nobody is looking for that kind of experience. I don't know about you, but if I happen to see someone just appear in the room, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to first of all be terrified, and then I'm going to look for, I used to say I'd look for Mr. Armstrong or Dr. Meredith, but I'd, I'd want to find somebody that can tell me, is this real or is this, is this a spook? Because I've talked to too many people who have supposedly seen something, and I believe they have seen something, but based on their descriptions, it wasn't God. It wasn't Christ. Well, what did he look like? Well, he, just like the pictures. That's a pretty good clue that it wasn't the real Christ. But people do see things, and I hope we're not looking for those things. However, I think that as you understand in the balance of what I'm trying to say, don't we long for that close relationship, that really deep relationship, that in this physical flesh, as we are today, it is so difficult to gain and maintain. And perhaps we could say it's, it's impossible for us to have that, that complete relationship that we'd like to have. But God does hear our prayers, doesn't he? He gives us of his spirit. We are and can be close to God. Three times Paul affirmed that the just shall live by faith. Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, and Hebrews 10.38, Hebrews 10.38, he affirmed that the just shall live by faith. And that's what we must do. We have to live by faith at this time. But the closeness of seeing and hearing the voice of God was for the most part lost at the garden. I say at the, for the most part because we do see that there were a number of occasions down through history where Christ, the one, the God of the Old Testament, Jesus Christ, revealed himself to individuals. Let's go back to Genesis, the fourth chapter, and read something here that I, I found a little bit surprising. Genesis 4, you think you've understood it all, and then all of a sudden you see something you've never seen before, and something that's so familiar. In Genesis 4, verse 9, this is after... Cain had killed his brother. And the Eternal said to Cain, verse 9, Where is Abel your brother? 
And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, there was a very powerful sermon that Mr. Lambert Greer gave on my, my brother's keeper. I hope you'll, if you haven't heard that one, if you're new, uh, go on the website and look that up. Look it up under Mr. Greer or Am I My Brother's Keeper, either one. And you can hear that particular sermon. A very, very important question as he brought out. Something that we read over and we never think much about it, but as he points out, that's really the answer. The Bible spends the rest of time answering that question, Am I My Brother's Keeper? Verse 10, and he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, verse 12, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Eternal, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. Notice that. I shall be hidden from your face. That's what I'd never seen before. The part of the punishment was to be totally cut off from God in terms of being able to speak with God because clearly uh, God spoke to Cain. He said, where's your brother? And there was a conversation between the two. And this is more than simply a mental conversation, I'm sure. There was a conversation, whether he saw God, the one who became Jesus Christ, or heard a voice. All we know is that there was a confrontation between the two. And Cain said about his punishment that was, says, too great for me. He says, I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord put a a mark on him somehow, whatever that was. It's not what some have uh, concluded. Some have had very racist ideas, which have nothing to do with this whatsoever. But there was some sort of a, a mark noted on Cain that people would recognize who he was. In the 32nd chapter, of Genesis, we also read of someone who was able to see God face to face, and that's Jacob. We're familiar with this story, so I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'll just read verse 30. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. So he wrestled with the one who we believe. Uh, was the one who became Jesus Christ, because it speaks of it as God here, the God of the Old Testament, in a, an unglorified state. And he wrestled with him, and he saw him face to face. And once he realized that, it frightened him. And he recognized that this was not an ordinary human being that he was wrestling with. And it set his life on a different course. Notice also in Numbers, the 12th chapter, another individual who saw God, in this case, mouth to mouth. Uh, Read here in chapter 12 of Numbers and verse 6. This is when Miriam and Aaron had spoken against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married. 
You see, they didn't have that problem, and so they accused Moses of something awful and terrible. Uh, it, it is interesting how we will always justify our murmuring and our complaining. Uh, back then, it was murmuring. What you do is murmuring, but what I do, I'm just saying the truth, observing the obvious. We will justify just about any behavior, won't we, as human beings? So they said, verse 2, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the eternal heard it. And so he brought them together, and he said to Miriam and Aaron, verse 6, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, you know, if there is, I, the eternal, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. But verse 7, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face. The old King James says mouth to mouth. And when you look up the word there, it is not face, it is mouth. I speak with him mouth to mouth, not mouth to mouth resuscitation, but in other words, I speak to him and he speaks to me. We have this communication. There are other verses that say face-to-face. But in other words, there was a conversation that could be carried on very directly between Moses and the one who later became Jesus Christ. Notice over in Deuteronomy 34. Deuteronomy 34. Here, speaking of Moses, he does bring out face-to-face. And verse 10. says, but since then there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the eternal knew face to face. And there it is, the words face and face are the word, the Hebrew word that means face. So one place it says mouth to mouth, the other says face to face. Mr. Jonathan, not Jonathan, Mr. Rod McNair wrote an article for the Tomorrow's World on FaceTime might want to go back and, and read that. So important, something that we are losing in our world today is just a side to all this. We're losing it because of Facebook, which is not FaceTime, and Twitter, and email, and all kinds of social media. We are losing that communication with one another. And you see people in the same car, uh, texting back and forth like the two girls in the back seat and asked by their parents, why aren't you talking? We don't want you to hear. Uh, they had their own conversation. They didn't want mom and dad to hear. Well, we have all this stuff, but we're losing FaceTime, aren't we? It's kind of sad how much we want that FaceTime with God. In Deuteronomy, the fifth chapter, we also find something that there were a lot of people that had face time with God. In Deuteronomy 5, right before the second time of the recording of the Ten Commandments, in verse 4, Moses is rehearsing their history, and he says in verse 4 of Deuteronomy 5, 
the Eternal talked with you face to face on the mountain from the midst of the fire. Now, we know that that's in in a figurative sense, don't we? But they did hear what God had to say. Notice over in Hebrews, the 12th chapter, Hebrews 12. And this is beginning in verse 18. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. He says, but you've come to the Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable company of angels. That's us, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. That's where we've come, who are registered in heaven. Our names are registered in heaven. In that book of life, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. God is perfecting us. To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. It's amazing how it's all tied together. Going back to the mountain, going back to the blood of Abel and and so forth as he does here. Uh, He just brings everything together. So... They saw, uh, they didn't see God in that sense, but it was a face-to-face confrontation that was terrifying for the children of Israel. And they said, Moses, you speak to God, but uh, and then you tell us what he had to say. I'm afraid that that might be the way it is. If we saw God suddenly, or Jesus Christ appeared to us, we might be in the same category. In fact, when you read of the servants of God coming and Contact with an angel of God, Gabriel, for example, uh, and Daniel. We see that they fall on their face. They are terrified when they see a spirit in that way. And yet we all want that close relationship with our Creator, don't we? That's something that we long for. In Psalm 17, verse 15, we see that David longed for that relationship with his with God, and he's looking forward to the time when he'll be able to see God face to face. You can read the whole psalm, but I'll just read verse 15, the very end verse, Psalm 17:15. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. So he would awake in the likeness of God. He was looking forward to the resurrection. And he knew at that time he would see God's face, just as we shall see the face of God in the resurrection. And what a wonderful thing that's going to be. And from that time on, there will not be that separation that sometimes enters into our lives because of guilt from sin. It was mentioned Numbers 9.13 in the sermonette of the Passover and that those who refused the Passover, who didn't have an excuse but decided not to keep the Passover, will be cut off from their people. 
because of their sin. Their sin. In other words, it was a sin to avoid that when the opportunity was there. He's talking in Numbers 9 about the second Passover for those that were on a journey who were not able, perhaps sick, not able to be there. Sin is our enemy, and it separates us from our God. In Isaiah, the 59th chapter, verse 1, Isaiah 59 and verse 1, says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. So when we go before God, we're asking for healing, we're asking for his intervention in a particular situation in our life or the life of someone else that we know, some individual that is going through a difficult trial. He says it's not because his ear is heavy or he cannot hear, that he doesn't have the ability to save or intervene, but your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And then he describes some of the things he's talking about. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversity. And instead calling for for justice, uh, they do just the opposite. You can read the remainder of that. But when we sin, it affects the closeness that we have to God. Not that God does not forgive our sins, because that's what it's all about. God knows that we're sinners. He knows that we come up short. And he has a a plan to reconcile us, as we shall see. But our sins are what separate us from God. In Deuteronomy, the seventh chapter, it shows that the ultimate separation is death. That's the ultimate separation of sin. In chapter 7 of Deuteronomy and verse 10, I'm going to start verse 9. Therefore, know that the eternal your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him, and keep his commandments. Now, that means that there are those who do love him and those who do keep his commandments. And I would think that we are the ones that fall in that category at this time. We know that we don't do it perfectly. And he repays those who hate him to their face. Those who hate him by rejecting his laws, his commandments, to destroy them. Notice, he repays them who hate him to their face, to destroy them. He will not be slack with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. God is going to show himself in the future. In Revelation, the first chapter, and verse 7, we read here, Revelation 1, verse 7, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Yes, there's coming a time of a resurrection where everyone will see him, including those who are there, hammering the nails through his hands into the wood, the soldier who thrusts a spear into his side, and all of us down through history who are guilty 
of the death of Christ. All will see him at that time. And there's coming a time, and I'm not getting into the resurrections and everything here, but there's coming a time where everyone will have to answer one way or the other. And if they are given a full chance, an opportunity to accept Christ as their Savior, and they reject that, he will punish them face to face. He will throw them into a lake of fire. We don't know whether he will do so individually or the angels will or you and I will be part of that. We know that they'll have to face their creator. They're not going to be able to hide. They haven't really wanted to see God before, or they did. They challenged. They wanted to see if God was real. They'll find out at some point in time. Revelation 21. Revelation 21. And we'll read verses 7 and 8. It's talking about new heaven and a new earth. And it says in verse 7, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. A son in a true sense. I mean, we are the sons of God now. We're begotten of God the Father. But it's talking about a time when we will be born in that very family. It will be a son in a in a even more real sense, a more complete sense, you might say. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters. The word sorcery there, sorcerers, comes from pharmakeia, and it may very well be describing uh, recreational drugs. I know that there were times that we used to refer to it in, in terms of uh, very early in the church of the pharmacy itself. But it's talking here about people who are using pharmacia drugs. Now, some of it, no doubt, is used in religious ceremonies. But when you look at the drug culture, uh, they're oftentimes looking for enlightenment to be able to do things in a better way. Other times it's just get high for the sake of getting high. But he's talking about things that are going to apply some way. I'm not sure exactly how to apply that, but I, I think that it's something we should consider. You know, people have asked, if marijuana is legal, then is it wrong for me to smoke it? Come on, give me a break. Cigarettes are legal. Do we smoke them? Eating pork is legal. Do we do that? What is the purpose of all these things? You can drink alcohol and not get drunk, but why do people smoke marijuana? I won't get into the, all the uh, medical aspects of it, although I think that that's a ruse in most cases. But nevertheless, why do people really want to smoke it? It's to get high, the overwhelming majority. It's going to be legal in Canada and our leaders up there have been asked these questions. And you wonder, why? Why would anybody ask such a question? It should be obvious. You wonder what people really want to do, what it is that's in their minds. I suppose our ministers in Colorado and Washington State and other places, they may have been asked the same question. Do we have the mind of God? Some say, well, it's natural. 
Well, so is tobacco natural and poison ivy and poison oak. And we don't put that in paper and smoke it, do we? There are a lot of things that are natural, but it doesn't mean that we, you know, God may have made it for a different reason. I think there are medical uses for some of these things, not to get high, but there are qualities to these things. Opium, obviously, somebody's in horrendous pain can be beneficial, um, but it's what it's used for, what the purpose of it is, of course. But there are a lot of things that are natural that we would not want to put into our bodies. Arsenic, I think, is natural. I think it's naturally occurring, isn't it? It's not something man's made. Lead? Lead is natural, and they used to make the pipes. They got the lead from from uh, Britain, took it down to uh, Pompeii, and sold pipes. And the people were slowly lead-poisoned because they had running water that was flowing through lead pipes. You can still see them to this day. They're still there. So there are a lot of things that are natural. It says, The cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's ultimate separation, isn't it? That is ultimate separation from God. Now let's notice in verse 22. He says, it's after describing the new Jerusalem. He says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of sun or of the moon to shine. For the glory of God illuminated it, the Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter in or enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. I think that sometimes people have the idea that, well, there will be people outside of the city. They'll be left out. Well, they'll be left out all right. They won't be there, the new heaven and the new earth. It's not saying that there will be abominable people, liars and so forth, on the outside of the city and they're not going to be allowed in. No, they're, they're, they're going to be outside. They're going to be burned up in a lake of fire. That's really the sense here. I think, again, I know that I did at one time. I thought, well, it sounds like they're talking about these other people being left out of the city, but they can kind of come up and see this. No, they're outside altogether. They're not anywhere around. Chapter 22, verse 12. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to every one according to his works. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those, verse 14, who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. The tree of life. Those of us who have been partaking of the tree of life in a spiritual sense are going to be able to be there in the city and walk into the city and be a part of it, a part of that kingdom 
But he says, but outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. Yes, they're out of it because they're dead. They're gone. They have no part whatsoever in the coming uh, kingdom of God when it comes to this earth. They're long gone. Now, in addition to separation from God, there are other kinds of separation which result from sin. There are breaches that occur between people on many levels. One very famous breach is found in the book of Genesis. In the 37th chapter, it tells us that Joseph's brothers, 11 brothers, hated him. And then we read a little bit later how they conspired to kill Joseph. And Judah saw that there was no profit in that, so he said, you know, let's sell him. Reuben, who was the oldest uh, before that, he, he thought, well, it's a little radical to kill him. Let's, let's just put him in this, this pit and I'll come back and I'll spare him later on. He was being a responsible brother. Uh, Simeon uh, probably was uh, because of what with the rest of the story that we read there, probably was the, the ringleader of the uh, let's kill him uh, group of the, the, the 12, of the 11. But we find that this was a terrible thing. You talk about a breach, a separation. How could it get worse than 11 of his brothers wanting to kill him or at least scare the daylights out of him or sell him off into slavery? That's about as bad as you can get. Over in Proverbs, the 16th chapter, Proverbs 16 It tells us that sin separates people through another means. Proverbs 16 and verse 28. You see, with Jacob's brother, it was jealousy. And his father showing him favoritism in the way he did was not wise, of course. But there was jealousy in the brothers. And they allowed themselves to hate him. And, of course, Joseph had his part in it. He uh, bragged and told them that he was going to be over them and tell him about the dreams that God had given him, but he should have kept his mouth shut. So there there are problems there. But here's something that may apply to us in a more direct way, Proverbs 16, verse 28. He says, A perverse man sows strife, and a whisperer separates the best of friends. A whisperer separates the best of friends. You can have people who are wonderful friends, and they can be separated by a whisperer. I remember a case many years ago, and I have to not be too direct about it, but I remember a case where some people were whispering against another individual. And what had been a close relationship for all of their lives was uh, had never been the same. 25 years later, more than 25 years later, Not the same, because somebody was whispering back and forth, and it separated uh, dear friends at that time. Proverbs 17 and verse 9, right across the page for some of us. Proverbs 17 verse 9, it says, He who covers a transgression seeks love. Notice that, a transgression a sin. 
There are sins that occur. And there are two ways to handle it when we learn of it. We can spread it all over the place, or we can just tell one or two people, either way, or we can cover it up. We can recognize it's between God and that individual. Or we may talk to that individual directly, face-to-face, mouth-to-mouth, as it were. But love covers a transgression. It doesn't spread it all over the place. And yet, again, the difference is that if, if you're telling it, that's slander and that's whatever. But if I'm telling it, I'm just informing people of whatever it might be. You know, we, we justify our actions so often, don't we? We play games with ourselves. God is not fooled. And so you have people who create division in some cases because they just have to spread what they want to around. He who covers a transgression seeks love. That's what we all ought to be seeking. But he who repeats a matter separates friends, separates people who were once friends. Sin separates people from the church sometimes. In Amos 3, in verse 3, this is one of those memorization scriptures. Amos 3, verse 3, says, Can two walk together unless they are agreed? If people have radically different opinions on certain things, I mean, we all have different opinions about some things, but when we come to a place that we are so at odds with one another that we, that we, we can't agree, then it separates us. Can two walk together except they are agreed? I've had friends over the years who I went to Ambassador College with that are so different today in their outlook, their worldview, that there's really no desire to even be with them. Now, there are those who may not be in our fellowship, but they're out there, but we still have something in common. But there are those that you have absolutely nothing in common with other than a past history that you once knew each other. But now I think one way, and that person thinks so exactly the opposite, that probably neither of us would care to to spend time with each other. I think that's probably the case. I know one individual I was close to, and last time I talked to him, we were so far apart that I thought, I'm not going to call him anymore, and he's never called me. It's been decades since that happened, I think, decades, I don't remember. So it's obvious that he's not interested in keeping a relationship up, and I'm not, because we're so different. There's not, there's no agreement. Now, it says, can two walk together unless they be agreed? Over in 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, a chapter that we'll probably read a number of times during the Days of Unleavened Bread, we find that there's an individual who, uh, whether he agreed on the Sabbath or the Holy Days, by his actions, by his way of life, he was so different that the Apostle Paul said, put this person out. Verse 1 of chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1, it is sexual, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. And so he tells them, verse 4, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you were gathered together, along with my spirit, 
with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So we'll read this, no doubt, cover it in greater detail as we have the Days of Unleavened Bread. But the point is that when our way of life is so different from that of others, uh, that of the church itself, there comes a time of separation as well. In Romans, the 16th chapter, Romans 16, we read of separation there. And we'll look here, verse 17. It says, Now I urge you, brethren, note, take note of those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. I don't think any of us want to be simple. But there are people who will deceive as a result of that. Reconciliation is a wonderful thing. When we are divided and brought back together, it's an absolutely beautiful thing. We have the example of Lazarus and the rich man. Uh, in this particular case, well, I better read this. Uh, that's not really reconciliation yet. But we read how there's a great gulf between the two. The one in the bosom of Abraham, the other one about ready to be thrown in the lake of fire. I don't want to go through all the details there. But there's that ultimate separation. And yet the point that I want to make here is that the gap, the gulf, can be bridged in time. The gulf can be bridged. We are separate from God until we come to the place where we repent of our sins and accept Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. And our work is the work of reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17 to 21, it says that we are ministers of reconciliation. That we're, well, let's turn over there. 2 Corinthians 5. And verse 17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So we were once at odds. We were once separate from God. But through Jesus Christ, through his shed blood, through the fact that he gave his life in exchange for our lives, something that you and I understand, we know. I wonder sometimes if, if our young people really understand it, or sometimes brand new people. I, I think that it's, it's natural that we don't fully comprehend it. But there is a breach there that needs to be bridged. There is a reconciliation that not, must take place. And sometimes I think about it in terms of people want to be baptized, but then they want to wait for couple months in some cases, so that it's at the right spot. It's the right place. It's the right people being there. I, I remember the, the fellow that wanted to be baptized outside, and he made a block of ice, or a, like a bathtub outside in the winter, uh, so he could be baptized outside. He didn't want to be baptized in a swimming pool. 
You know, once we realize that we are sinners, we want to get that weight of sin off of our back, and we want it off right now, once we really fully comprehend it. Now, I understand that we have to be mature enough to comprehend what that means. But years ago, we didn't have people debating or making demands about where they're going to be baptized. There are some people that don't want to be baptized in a stock trough. Well, baptism pictures a burial, and that looks a whole lot more like a coffin than a river. So it, it isn't where you're, you know, the idea that, oh, I've got to be go to the Jordan River. There are people that literally go to the Jordan River to be baptized. Well, that water that is flowing down the Jordan is not the same water. In fact, that water is circulated around the earth that probably if you take a cup of water, you might have one molecule that came from the Jordan. I don't know. But water is water. And it is what it pictures. And we want to get that weight of sin off our backs. We want to be clean once again. As it says here in chapter 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Verse 18, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That's the ministry that we have. We want to reconcile people to Christ, but we also want to reconcile people one to another because we are to be one all together, no matter what race, no matter what background, no matter whether you're tall or short. Skinny or not so skinny. We're all to be one, no matter what our age may be. God is reconciling us to him. It it, it says a little bit more here, but let me go to a a different passage. That's Ephesians, the second chapter. Because Ephesians is talking about reconciling Jews and Gentiles. And here in verse 15... Verse 14, for he himself is our peace, Christ is our peace, who has made both one, both Jew and Gentile, and has broken down the middle wall of separation that was separating the Jews and the Gentiles there at the the temple, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, these man-made dogmas that they had that were not given by God, but these Jewish regulations, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. God is reconciling all of us. And, and that means he's reconciling those that are easy to get along with, with those who are grumpy, those who uh, maybe just have a lot of, Anger pent up because of the way that they were raised, uh, the things they've gone through. In other words, it's reconciling those that not only are Jews and Gentiles, and that's a, a big enough issue in itself because we all come from different races and, and different races have different characteristics. I'm sorry, that is uh, maybe not politically correct, but we do. We have different characteristics in some ways. But in Christ, we're one. In Christ, we are one. And So God is reconciling us to be at one. It's talking about those that are easy to get along with and those that are not always so easy to get along with. And those sometimes who do things that we really do not appreciate. 
or we think is a sin that somebody has committed. I'm not talking about going out and fornicating or something like that. I'm just talking about has habits and problems and difficulties and ways about him or her that, that we might not appreciate. God has brought us to be one. He is reconciling us to be one. We have the example of the prodigal son. What a glorious reunion that is. Luke, the 15th chapter. You can read about that reconciliation between the father and the son who went out and squandered his inheritance. And then we find that the father has to reconcile with the oldest son. He has to go out and say, look, son, let's let's reason together. Let's think this through. You still have everything because there was a certain problem that was created when the younger son was reconciled, so there had to be another reconciliation. I was reminded recently of one of my personal observations, and that is that you only know you have a genuine friend when you really mess up and that person forgives you and accepts you as you are. I I never quite feel perfectly at ease with someone. I shouldn't say at ease. I I don't want to give you some sort of a, uh, I don't know, a phobia, but uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, You you might have a funny feeling because you're wondering the relationship here. But when you have a close friend, you you enjoy that person, but it's like a a, a fellow and a girl, okay? I'll use that example. Uh, Sooner or later there's going to be a conflict, sooner or later. And you really never know whether that person likes you until you make a mistake and then you find out, oh, he still likes me, or she likes me, so that must be okay. Not that what I did was okay, but we have something here. have someone who's willing to forgive. So when you really mess up and that person still likes you, you're more comfortable with that person, aren't you? you realize that, okay, she realizes I'm human, I realize she's human, and we work through those things. That's what we do in marriage, don't we? We work through those difficulties. And every married couple, as far as I know, has gone through something like that where somebody does something that somebody doesn't like. But forgiveness, reconciliation is a wonderful thing. Sometimes the world refers to fair-weather friends as long as everything's going well. When, when two young people start dating, they're on their best behavior, aren't they? Each one is doing everything exactly right. But sooner or later, somebody let their hair down and something will happen. You know, one of the most beautiful examples of reconciliation is found back in the book of Genesis. I was going to read this, but I, I don't have time. I've run out of time. But remember how Joseph's 11 brothers really messed up big time? by selling their brother into slavery. And you can read Genesis 45, verse 1 to 15. And if you can read that without choking up just a little bit, you're either more cold-hearted or tougher than I am. Because what a beautiful reconciliation. Joseph made it possible to reconcile with his brothers. He forgave them. Now, he put them through some difficult times uh, to send certain lessons, Simeon being in jail for a time. 
Can you imagine when the 11 had to go back and tell their father Joseph is alive? Now, that would have been very good, except when he started asking questions. You think that he might have asked the boys a question or two? Well, what do you mean he's alive? How can that be? I thought you said he was dead. Well, there was probably a little bit of reconciliation there that had to take place as well. You know, we separate ourselves from one another and from God through sin, don't we? And we're all guilty of sin. But our Creator is a gracious and a loving God. When you read Psalm 103, you realize that He's compassionate. He knows how we're made. He knows our weaknesses. Through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which we will remember Passover evening. Of course, we remember that all through the year. But we'll remember each year at Passover in a special way. God is reconciling us to him. He is taking the breach of our sin and he is setting it aside. He is allowing his son to pay that penalty for us so that we can be reconciled to him. May we all be reconciled to God and to one another.